you have to have a historical background of what we're going to talk about here. You have to know uh, what the background is in, in, in church history. So we're going to be talking about Calvinism. You see it up there. And uh, you see the little uh, play on words I have below that, the dying tulip. That's a historical introduction. Now, the reason I put a dying tulip there is because tulip is an acronym that Calvinists use in order to def define uh, their teachings, to make it easy to remember. And there's three people from history that you really have to know about to know about Calvinism. And we're going to look at these three figures today. Okay? First guy, his name is Pelagius. This guy was, is probably one of the most slandered people in church history. He lived from about 355 to 425 A.D. and died somewhere probably near Palestine, you know, modern-day Israel. He was well-educated. He was fluent in both Latin and Greek and very learned in theology. But most of his life was focused on practical holiness, living a holy life personally, each individual. He was a holiness preacher. He was a good speaker as well, and a very persuasive one, according to his opponents, according to the people who heard him speak. And a man of great personal holiness himself. Even his opponents would say this about him. That's when you know you have a holy man. When people who disagree with him, who don't like him, will say, man, that guy was a holy guy. He was holy. He lived for God. He was never officially ordained by the church at that time, but his writings made a big impact on the church wherever he went. Big impact. But he was most well known for this conflict he had with a man named Augustine, who's also from that period of time. Uh, he came against Augustine's teachings of original sin slash sinful nature, predestination, and imperfection, which is that we can't obey God. That no one can obey God. Those are the teachings he came against. Augustine didn't believe in free will, didn't believe in, uh, in that we could obey God completely, and he believed in original sin, sinful nature, and predestination. And now, of course, predestination is in the Bible, but the question is, what does that mean? And Augustine and Pelagius believe they meant two totally different things. And we'll go through that as we go through the, the teachings of Calvinism and why they're wrong. Now, Pelagius was in Rome about 410 A.D. When, when the Germans came down and took over Rome. So he fled from Rome to, a, to northern Africa, right near modern-day Tunisia, modern-day Algeria, and a place called Carthage, which is right where Augustine was a bishop. Right near where Augustine was a bishop. And while he was in Carthage, Pelagius' teachings of free will and holiness and no original sin, no sinful nature, they spread. People were, were latching on to him, believing it. And it was, uh, it was disturbing Augustine. He's the bishop of the church in this area. So he began to, uh, to write writings against Pelagius. But Pelagius eventually went to modern-day Israel, Palestine, and uh, while he was in Palestine, his teachings began to spread again. And Augustine, all the way back in Africa, he wrote his friend over in Palestine, Jerome, and said, Beware of this guy. Come against him with everything that you can. 
and uh, Jerome did the best he could. And then uh, Augustine also sent one of his disciples there to come against Pelagius. His name was Erosius. So Jerome and Erosius, uh, they, they made a lot of noise about Pelagius and about his teachings in Palestine. So the bishop of the church in Jerusalem, Bishop John, decided to, uh, to hold a council about Pelagius to decide whether his teachings were really orthodox, whether they were really biblical or not. And, um, but Bishop John, he's a friend of Pelagius. He agrees with Pelagius, but he holds the council anyway because he wants to be fair. So, Erosius brought this charge, and Jerome brought this charge of heresy against Pelagius, but the council, when they heard what they had to say, they said, no, we don't agree with you. We don't agree with you. And so they, they turned over to another church in, in the West, a Latin church, to let them discuss this again. So, in, so a couple, six months later, another council was formed in a place called uh, Diospolis, which is in Lydda. And this was under a different bishop, and uh, it was called by two bishops who did not like Pelagius' teaching either. So the side now was presided by a bishop named Eulogius and 13 other bishops from that area. Now I have some notes uh, for you from, is it over here, Mitch? Uh, that I want, I want you, it's not something we're going to read right now, but I want you to, you can take it with you today and, and take a look at it if you want. And uh, this is the actual notes from what happened at that council. So you can see what this council thought about Pelagius' teaching and, uh, and see what their final decision was. Now their final decision was that he was orthodox. That he was not a heretic. Uh, that his teachings were biblical. But you can, you can read more in depth about that on your own time, if you will. So by the end of the Sinai, Pelagius was redeemed, he was orthodox, he was in full communion with the church. So Augustine's disciple, Erosius, went back to Carthage, Africa, where Augustine formed a couple little councils himself, and they declared Pelagius a heretic. But wait, what do you think the problem with that is? The, the two times that Pelagius was able to be at the council and defend his beliefs, he, he was declared orthodox, and biblical. Augustine's disciple goes back to him in Africa. They hold two synods by themselves on the side without Pelagius able to be there. That ain't able to defend his beliefs and clarify what he really believes and they declare him a heretic. What's wrong with that picture? He defends himself. He's declared orthodox and biblical. He can't defend himself. They hold this secretly, a synod without him able to be there, and they deem him a heretic. There's something wrong with that. So that, that's what happened. And then, and then one of the first popes at that point in time, around the uh, 5th century, his name was Pope Innocent, a letter was sent to him by Augustine. Where Augustine said, you need to declare this guy a heretic. And Pope Innocent, you know, he, he didn't, it didn't take much convincing with him. He just said, okay, yeah, he's a heretic. But soon after that, Pope Innocent died. Another pope came into power. And Pelagius had written a letter to Pope Innocent to, to vindicate himself, to clear up what he actually believes, and to show how it is biblical. Of course, by the time the letter got to Rome, Pope Innocent was dead. But this next pope read what Pelagius wrote and said, yes, you're not a heretic. Yes, what you believe is, uh, is biblical. You are orthodox. And that's what, we, uh, that's what happened 
with Pelagius in that situation. So when Pelagius is able to defend himself to that one pope and both councils, he was deemed orthodox and biblical in perfect alignment with the teachings of the apostles through the scriptures. When he wasn't able to represent himself, secret letter to the pope, and two councils that he wasn't able to appear at and defend himself or clarify what he believes, he was denounced as a heretic. So you see the problem there. There's some, there's some lack of integrity there on the part of the people who were doing this. And then after Pelagius died, there's a council called the Council of Ephesus in 431 AD. That's after he died now. Still not able to speak for himself. Now they denounce him a heretic once again. So, I bring up all these councils and synods. They're not worthless history. It's good history to know. Simply for this fact, because Calvinists who believe in Calvinism will always bring up these synods. They'll bring up these councils. They'll bring up these decisions by the popes. They say, look, he was deemed a heretic. So what? Why do I care what a council long ago said? Does a council or a synod determine what is biblical and what isn't? Of course not. No, it does not. Uh, orthodoxy, let me just define orthodoxy for you. Orthodoxy is simply conforming to established doctrine. Conforming to established doctrine. The question becomes, where do you get established doctrine from? Is it from a council? Is it from a synod? Is it from some popular teacher? Is it from some, some church's statement of faith? No, you get orthodoxy, you get established doctrine from the Bible. Bible. That's where you get it from. From the clear teaching of the Bible. The Bible was written down by holy men of old as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We know the word inspired means God breathed. So if I put a trumpet to my mouth, the trumpet's an instrument in my hands, I am the author of the notes. When God writes down the Holy Scriptures through men as instruments in His hand, who's the author of the Bible? God. Not man. God. So a council, a synod, a catechism, a statement of faith, a popular teacher, a book on theology does not determine what is orthodox and what isn't. Does not determine established doctrine. The Bible does. So now, instead of arguing about what's council did this, what's council did that, what synod decided this, no, let's go back to the Bible. Let's discuss the scriptures. That's what matters in the end. So in all reality, it doesn't matter what these synods said, what these councils, these bishops said, if they go against the clear teaching of God's Word. I could care less what Pope Innocent said if he's going against what the Bible says. I could care less what Augustine said about Pelagius, if Pelagius is right and biblical and Augustine isn't. That's what matters in the end, being biblical, conforming to the Word of God. Now let's talk about Augustine. Pelagius is an opponent. And Augustine always had good things to say about Pelagius. He just didn't like his doctrine. Like I said, Pelagius' opponents always said good things about him. Because he was a holy man. Which to me, uh, gives a stamp of approval upon him. Because he looked holy. 
I don't care how good someone's doctrine, if they're not living holy, I don't want nothing to do with them. So Augustine lived from about 354 to 430, about the same time period as Pelagius. He was born to a pagan father and a Christian mother. Uh, and early on, he resisted his mother's influence to, to bring him to Christianity, to bring him to become a Christian. So living as a pagan intellectual, he took a concubine, a woman for himself that he was not married to, and she bore him a son. And then he became known as a Manichaean Gnostic. Manichaean Gnostic. The Manichaean part is not very important, but Gnostic is important, and we'll talk about that more in depth here in a little bit. So he became well known as, an, as a speaker and a philosopher. He studied the pagan philosophies of Plato. You guys have all heard of Plato. So he studied the philosophies of Plato. He later converted to Christianity and became the bishop of Hippo in North Africa. It's the very northeastern tip of modern-day Algeria near the Tunisia border. That's where it was in his time. He became a Christian at the age of 32. After discussions about Christianity with a friend, he heard a child's voice telling him, pick up and read. Pick up and read. And he thought it was some kind of game at first that a child was playing with him, or some song a child was singing. But he took it as the voice of God, saying, pick up and read. So he picked up the scriptures, turned and read the first thing that he found, and it was Romans chapter 13, verses 13 through 14, which says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, not in drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That's what he read. That's what he read. And his conversion story is one of the most well-known in Christian history. But getting back to this Gnostic thing, before, his, before he became a Christian, I want to give you some things they believed in. The Manichaean Gnostics believed the material world, as we know it, was all created by an inferior God, the God of the Old Testament. Now, you may hear in the open air sometimes, someone say, well, the God of the Old Testament is really judgmental, but the God of the New Testament is loving and kind and nice. They're the same God. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. But the Gnostics believe that the Old Testament was created by an inferior, uh, or the, the world we have, the material world, was created by an inferior God, the God of the Old Testament. They believe that flesh, your skin, this material you have, that you're living in, is inherently sinful or evil. They call it darkness. But that the spirit of man is good and it's light. They believe that Christ really didn't come in the flesh because the flesh is evil. How could Christ come in the flesh? And if you look at the book of 1 John, you see John the Apostle coming against this teaching. You know, if, if you deny that Christ came in the flesh, you're antichrist, he says. He's coming as Gnosticism. Um, that Christ only came in the spirit, and it just, it just seemed that he had a physical body. He really didn't have a physical body. They believe that sin is something that's propagated through a marital sexual union. So sin is passed from person to person by having babies. Because sin's inherent, your body is inherently sinful. So that, that's what they believe sin was. They believe that sexual desire, even within marriage, is sinful. In and of itself, it's sinful. 
And that sexual lust in procreation transmits the sin to the offspring. And that's why, according to them, Jesus didn't have sin because there's no father involved. It's just God the Father. There's no sexual lust involved. But as a Manichaean Gnostic, this teaching that the flesh was inherently sinful was a great comfort to Augustine because he loved his sexual sin. He loved living wicked. They let him blame his continual sexual sin on his lowly, fleshly nature, but still be moral. Because the Spirit's light, the Spirit's good, just the, just the flesh is sinful. So they emphasize the separateness of the flesh and the Spirit and how they could be doing different things and it'd be okay. So, this sounds really familiar to me. As I go to college campuses and preach on the streets, let me tell you some things I hear in the open air. You tell me if it sounds like Gnosticism or not. I was born a sinner. I have a sinful nature. I can't stop sinning. God's commands are too hard to obey. I can't obey God. I'll stop sinning when I get to heaven. David sinned, and he was a man after God's own heart. And he was a sinner. Peter denied Christ three times. Noah got drunk. And they'll use all his excuses, and what are they doing? They're justifying themselves. They're making excuses for their own sin. And that's the very root of this Gnosticism. Excuses for sin. What does the Bible say about you having any excuses before God on Judgment Day? Are you going to have any? No sinner will have any excuse before God on Judgment Day. So anything that gives you an excuse for your sin, is it biblical? It can't possibly be biblical because it gives you an excuse before God. So these things I even hear today, Gnosticism is still around. They don't call it Gnosticism, but it's still around. It's live and it's well. And it's plaguing within the church as well. In fact, I will tell you this. Augustine himself is one of the most influential theologians on all the church in this day and age. Augustine, who lived in the 4th and 5th century, is still influencing the church today through his teachings. And when someone, like the excuse I talked about a second ago, where someone says, I'll stop sinning when I get to heaven. What, is Jesus their Savior or is death their Savior? If you can't stop sinning until you get to heaven, then who's your Savior, Jesus or death? Death's your Savior. Death's more powerful than, powerful than Jesus is. Jesus can't save you from your sins. Only death can save you from your sins. And really what's behind this is this. Because the only thing that changes between now and when you die and go to heaven, if you're a Christian, is you get a new body. So what are they saying? My body's stopping me from living holy. My body's making me be sinful. This body right here is dirt. What did God create Adam out of? The dirt, the dust of the earth. Can dirt be sinful? Of course not. You take up some dirt, it's just, it's just dirt. This cannot be sinful. You can use it in a sinful way, but this itself is not sinful. It's just an instrument. It cannot be sinful. But that's what they're saying. They're saying, it's really blasphemy to me to say that death can give me victory over sin, but Jesus can't. That is not biblical. 
And uh, it, it, behind it, once again, is this idea of Gnosticism, that getting a new body, oh, now I can live holy in heaven because I have a new body now. Your body has nothing to do with it. Your will, your heart, has everything to do with it, and how you use your body has everything to do with it. That is straight-up Gnosticism. So the Bible describes our bodies as instruments to be used for righteousness or unrighteousness. Our bodies are not sinful in and of themselves. And like I said, if you would read 1 John with the knowledge of this idea of Gnosticism, you get more insight to it now. You know what the Apostle John is coming against. And, before, and even before Augustine, many of the early church fathers, from people who were disciples of the disciples, all the way up to Augustine, all of them, without exception, believed in free will. All of them, uh, without exception, believed in holiness. And many of them wrote against this idea of Gnosticism. Guys like Irenaeus, Tertullian, Origen, Hippolytus, Clement of Alexandria. And I'm going to give you later on, uh, maybe later on today, a whole list of quotes from early church fathers on all the doctrines of Calvinism. So you can see for yourself, you can have it, you don't have to write it down, you have it for you have your own copy. And there's tons of quotes, but I compiled about three or four pages worth for you. So Augustine seemed to have a hard time letting go of his Gnosticism. Now, of course, he didn't believe no, any longer that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Um, the whole idea of the Old Testament God being an inferior God, he dealt with that by uh, interpreting the Old Testament allegorically, which just means symbolically. Nothing's really literal in the Old Testament. So that's how he got around that Gnostic belief. So he got rid of some of his Gnostic beliefs, but he still held on to some of them. He held on to the flesh being sinful. He held on to sin being propagated through the sexual union in marriage. And that sexual lust in itself, even within marriage, is sinful. He held on to those things, didn't let go of them. Early on in, in Augustine's writings, he seemed to believe in free will. And he did. He, he talked about it, he defended it. But later on, he gave up on free will. He got rid of it. In fact, later on, we'll even read a quote about that where he, he talks about how he gave up on free will. They couldn't believe in it any longer. So he held on to these things. And he began to formulate doctrines of orig original sin, the doctrine of sinful nature, the Calvinistic version of the doctrine of predestination. He began to formulate these things when no one else in church history had ever taught these things before. Not the disciples of the disciples, not their disciples. In the first 400 years of the church, no one taught these things. There's something wrong with that. Anytime you see a new doctrine, it's probably not biblical. Because what, what does Jude 3 say? Contend for the faith earnestly that was once for all delivered to the saints? Now, if a doctrine doesn't come around to Augustine's time, and it's supposedly biblical, but no one believes it up to that point then I guess when Jude was writing Jude 3, he didn't have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He needed Augustine to help him out. Jude should have lived for another 400 years. Maybe he knew what the Bible teaches then, right? But the fact is, we had the faith once for all delivered to the saints way before Augustine. God don't need Augustine's help to give the church the truth. So he began to develop these teachings that were not true. And he was a very prolific writer with more than a hundred separate titles that are still around have survived today. 
You know, that usually is what happens in the church. The group of people who write the most, who have the most money to publish their books the most, that's the theology that becomes the most popular, that becomes the most true, supposedly. But we all know that popularity does not equal truth. In fact, most times, popularity equals lies. Because the truth is not popular. It's not popular. So he was a very prolific writer. And I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard of the Protestant Reformation, which is when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the church, Catholic church door, and the Protestant church started. The Lutheran church. The Reformed church. And uh, the most influential theologian upon, Augustine, upon uh, Martin Luther and upon John Calvin, who we're going to talk about here in a minute, is Augustine. Augustine. His writings influenced them more than anything else. And they admit that. As a side note to this whole thing, this is kind of like a uh, nice fact. Augustine couldn't read Greek. You know what the problem with that is? All the writings of the Bible were in Greek in his time. So he's relying on someone else. He couldn't, I mean, how can someone in that day and age, or even in this day and age, call himself a theologian without understanding the language it was originally written in? But that's Augustine for you. And that's one of the reasons he came up with all these new doctrines. So there is a, a, a bit of ignorance on Augustine's part because uh, he maybe, maybe he thought he was doing what was right. But the fact is he couldn't read or understand Greek. He didn't even like it. He liked Latin, and he relied on Jerome's Latin translation of the Greek text. So he's relying on someone else. If someone's going to be a theologian in the truest sense, they must be able to understand the original language of the Bible. They must be able to understand that. Let me uh, tell you some doctrines that Augustine started. These are doctrines he started. No one before him believed in these things. Some of these things will blow your mind. That Mary was born and lived her entire life without ever sinning. Augustine believed that. He started that doctrine. That Mary lived her entire life without ever sinning. And she was born without sin, of course. The Catholics will call it Immaculate Conception. And even, even some Catholics believe that today. The same thing that Augustine started. Augustine also started this doctrine. Unbaptized infants are eternally damned. Now, is the baptizing of babies even biblical? Of course not. But now Augustine's saying, because of the fact that Augustine believes that babies are born sinners through the sexual procreation of their parents, he's got to have some way to get around that, right? He doesn't want babies to go to hell. People will think, well, this guy's a monster. He thinks babies are going to hell. So the way he got around that is this idea of baptism. But where do you ever find in the Bible an infant being baptized? Where do you ever find in the Bible an infant going to hell? Or in being in danger of going to hell? So unbaptized infants, according to Augustine, went to hell. They were eternally damned. That's the second thing he came with. The third thing he came with was what we've already mentioned. Sex within marriage is an inherently uh, wicked act, a debased act inherently. That's nowhere found in the Bible. The only thing Jesus talks about that's sinful when it comes to lust is lusting after someone who's not your spouse. That's sinful. Uh, but 
Wanting your spouse is biblical. It's what you should want. It's the way God designed you. He was the first person to come up with this idea that there would be no literal millennium at the end of the age. The thousand year reign of Christ. He was the first person to come up with that. He also taught that there's no forgiveness of sins outside of the Catholic Church. So, there were groups who broke off of the Catholic Church called the Donatists and other groups. And they were actually more, a lot more biblical than Augustine. Because they would not be a part of the Catholic Church at that time because it was, it was wicked. It was lukewarm. It wasn't following the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't living a holy life. So they separated from them. But he taught there's no forgiveness of sins outside of the Catholic Church. First person to teach that. He also taught this. That some of the practices and teachings of the apostles no longer apply to Christians because the apostles lived in a different time. First person to teach that. He's the first person to teach on purgatory. And there's a place called purgatory. You know, that's not true. There's no place you go to when you die that, you know, if your family pays money to church, you can fly out of there into heaven. It's, it's, un, it's unbiblical. It's not even found in the Bible. He also was the first person to teach that the dead, people who have already died, can benefit from communion or from the sacrifice of the Eucharist. He was the first person to teach that. And he was the first person to teach, and this is really important when we go into the next person here in a minute, the first person to teach that it was proper for a Christian government to persecute heretics. So no longer is the church itself being persecuted. Now, because in Augustine's time, the church and state were joined together, because Constantine came along and did away with persecuting Christians, now, the Roman Empire was primarily Christian. At least, it looked like it was Christian. But we all know, you see, even the church today, many people who say they're Christian, they go to church, they've been baptized, they may even read the Bible, they're not Christians. Not even close. Same thing in that point in time. But he believed it was okay for the government, with the approval of the church, to persecute heretics. So whoever is the, you know, the main guy in control at that point in time, so this guy, his beliefs are heretical, Kill him. Put him in jail. So we have Christians persecuting Christians. Professing Christians putting Christians in jail. And having them put to death by the government. Let me just read uh, one verse that comes to mind with that real quick. This is John 16, 2. They will put you out of the synagogue. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Something wrong with professing Christians killing people who don't believe what they believe in. It sounds more like Islam to me. It doesn't sound like Christianity. When did Jesus ever approve of such a thing or such a practice as that? All right, let's move on to John Calvin. And this is the guy who Calvinism is named after. John Calvin. As you can see, he's much later on. He's, you know, a thousand years or more removed from Augustine. But like I said, Augustine was, was still a prolific writer. Had over a hundred titles survive. That it, it heavily influenced John Calvin. But John Calvin, of course, he wasn't always 
a, a uh, Christian. He was raised by a staunch Roman Catholic family, a mother and father. His father wanted him to become a priest. But while he was in college, the teachings of Luther, Martin Luther, one of the reformers, the guy who nailed the 95 Thesis to the door, uh, their teachings were spreading throughout Paris, where he was living at the time. And he began to develop friendships with people who were coming out of the Catholic Church and becoming reformers. They were reform-minded. And this helped to influence him theologically, to go a different direction, to come out of the Roman Catholic Church and begin to believe otherwise. Around 1533, so making him about 24 years old, he fled Paris because of contact with individuals who were opposed to the Roman Catholic Church. Now keep in mind, remember what Augustine said, it's okay to persecute heretics. So the Roman Catholic Church is doing that. So if you disagree with the Roman Catholic Church and you're in their territory, guess what? You're in trouble. So he fled. Because he had friends who didn't, believe, uh, didn't agree with the Catholic Church and neither did he. Shortly after he fled Paris, he had his sudden and unexpected conversion. And for the next three years, Calvin studied on his own, he preached, and began work on the first edition of his book, you see up there, The Institutes on the Christian Religion. It's his most famous book. And I think he did maybe four or five revisions of it later on, and if you were to look at the first copy he had and the last copy, there's lots of changes. Lots of changes. He changed his mind a lot on many different things. So by 1536, shortly after his conversion, he had completely separated himself from the Roman Catholic Church and made plans to permanently leave France so he wouldn't be persecuted. He went to wanted to go to Strasbourg. And Strasbourg is a, a city in northeastern France at that point in time, at, near the border of Germany. It was a place of refuge for people who believed like he did. People who were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, but unfortunately, on his way out there, war broke out, and he had to go to Geneva, Switzerland instead. Geneva, Switzerland. And that's where he would spend most of the rest of his life. Uh, his first time there, though, he was there for two years, and because of problems the government had with his teachings, they asked him to leave. They said, get out. We don't want you around here. Leave Geneva. And he was gone from Geneva for three years, but then he went back and stayed there until the day he died. But his most, uh, most influential writings he had is that book called The Institutes on the Christian Religion. It's a very thick book. And it goes through basically all the theology that he holds to. But there's another side, another story of Calvin. Another side of him. There's a guy named Servetus. Michael Servetus. Very terrible situation. Remember what I told you, the end of talking about Augustine, that Augustine believed in persecuting heretics. Well, guess what? So did Calvin. Even though he was persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church, he said, well, we need to persecute people too. So this guy named Michael Servetus came along, and he had some kind of weird teachings on the Trinity. It's kind of hard to understand whether he really was a heretic in the normal sense or not, because his writings have, have just been lost. And all we have really about Michael Servetus' writings is what his opponents say about him. And oftentimes, if all you have about your writings is what your opponents say, it's hard to know what the, really the truth is. 
The opponents could lie about it. So Calvin was a big supporter of the local government persecuting or punishing heretics. And, he's, and there's a well-known account of, of Calvin being involved in this killing of this heretic, Michael Servetus. So if he didn't believe in the Trinity, then I think he is a heretic. If, he, if what Calvin says about him is true, then he is a heretic, I think. But the question is this. What do you do with a heretic? Do you try to teach him the truth? Do you kill him? Calvin believed in both. He tried to teach him the truth. He wouldn't receive it. So, let's kill him. And uh, I guess what, Michael Servetus one time was passing through Geneva. And uh, he got caught. In fact, listen to what Calvin said about Servetus before he came to Geneva. Because he'd had some discourse and dialogue with with Servetus through letters. He said, if he, Servetus, comes to, to Geneva, I shall never let him go out alive if my authority has any weight. If he comes to Geneva, I will never let him go out alive if my authority has any weight at all. He said this in 1546. And I'm going to have some quotes from Calvin for you too, so you can have these for yourself and see what he thought about Servetus and what he thought about theology. But Servetus decided to go to Geneva anyway. I guess he's a pretty bold man. And he showed up at a church service where Calvin was. Well, what do you think happened next? He was arrested. He was arrested. And listen to what Calvin said in a letter after Servetus had been arrested. We have now new business, business in hand with Servetus. He intended perhaps passing through this city, for it is not yet known why he came here. But after he had been recognized, I thought that he should be detained, arrested. My friend Nicholas summoned him on a capital charge. A capital charge? What does that mean? It means he's put to death. I hope, this is what he said, I hope that sentence of death will at last be passed upon him. That was Calvin's hope for Servetus, the heretic. He wanted it to happen. So before he got arrested, and when he got arrested, about six, seven years later, Calvin wrote that. Judgment came down from a council, and Servetus was given the death sentence for heresy. And here's the twist of the things here. At that point in time in Geneva, there was no law against heresy. Not one law against heresy on their books. If you don't have a law on a book in a country, can someone be punished for it? Of course not. If the government's not corrupt. The government's corrupt, they can do whatever they want. But this, you know, this, this is a Christian government here, so should it be corrupt? There was a law against blasphemy, which is an insult to God's character, but even that law, which Servetus was not charged with blasphemy, he was charged with heresy. Even if he was charged with blasphemy, there's no death penalty for that. No death penalty for blasphemy. And you know what the horrible thing is about those two things I just told you? That Calvin knew all this. Calvin himself was the one who wrote the laws for the Republic in 1535. He wrote the laws. He stood before the councils, yeah, death penalty. But he knew best himself. If anyone knew the laws, he knew them. But the council said, well, you must know better than us. And they believed them. 
And Calvin duped the court into believing that there was a law against heresy and that the law, which is non-existent, gave death penalty to the person who was found guilty. On top of all this, Servetus himself committed no crimes in the jurisdiction of Geneva. Even if heresy was a crime, and even if uh, heresy was punishable by death, he didn't commit any crimes in Geneva itself. Therefore, they had no right to imprison him. They had no right to exercise justice upon him if he had done nothing wrong in that country. It'd be like me going back to America, and, uh, you know, I do something there that's not in the law books, and then they punish me for it. That's not right to do that. It's not right to do that. So, uh, the whole issue was wrong from beginning to end. Calvin wishing the death of him, they capturing him, him wanting to put to death, charging with heresy, which is not in the law books, and, uh, and then putting him to death for it. Which there was no uh, death penalty for those kind of things. Even for blasphemy, there was no death penalty for that. I think one of the worst things about this whole ordeal, though, is this. That they decided to burn Servetus at the stake with green wood. Green wood. Green wood means wood is still alive, or it's wet. And it takes a long time to burn. You know how long Servetus burned for? Three hours. Three hours. Calvin, a supposed Christian, a supposed great theologian, used his power to put a man to death, who we don't even know what his beliefs on the Trinity were or not, because we don't really have much of his writings still around. All we have is what his opponents said about him. Put him to death for a loss not in the books. And even if he was charged with blasphemy, which he wasn't, that didn't require a death penalty. <laughs> So this is what you have from Calvin. What is even more surprising to me, given all of these facts, and they are facts, is that people would even read Calvin's writings, let alone look up to him as a great Christian or a great theologian, and not only that, defend him when we talk about these issues. Oh, it was just at that time, of the, you know, just in that age, just the way it was. You persecuted, that's just the way it was back then. You persecuted heretics. Where do murderers go? They go to hell. They go to hell. If you even hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer at heart, the Bible says. Listen to what Calvin said after Servetus. So we have before what Calvin said, when he was arrested, what he said. Now, after he was killed, let's hear what Calvin said about Servetus. Honor, glory, and riches shall be the reward of your pains. He's writing to a, a chamberlain. But above all, do not fail to rid the country of those scoundrels, the Anabaptists and other heretics, who stir up the peoples to revolt against us and our teachings. Such monsters should be exterminated, as I have exterminated Michael Cervantes the Spaniard. See, some Calvinists who look up to Calvin, who like Calvin, who like his writings, they'll say, well, you know, he didn't do anything. He had no weight. He had no pull. He wasn't a politician. But we have Calvin's own quote saying, I exterminated Michael Cervantes the Spaniard. I will use my weight. It's up to me. He ain't living the city alive. That's Calvin's own words. And again, another time after Cervantes uh, was killed, Calvin said, Let Baldwin abuse me as long as he will. 
provided that by the judgment of Malacton. Posterity owes me a debt of gratitude for having purged the church of so pernicious a monster. So he said the church owes him gratitude for cleansing the church of Servetus and for having him killed. The church owed him gratitude for killing somebody. So Calvin went out of his way and abused all the power he had to ensure that Servetus would be executed. So in conclusion about this issue, the killing of Servetus must be something which Calvin himself is held largely responsible for. Now, did he light the wood himself? Did he put the wood down there? Did he, did he bring Servetus to the stake to burn? No, he didn't do those things. But he exercised all authority he had to make sure this would happen, to make sure Servetus would be killed. He planned it. He maneuvered it from start to finish. It happened because of him and not in spite of him. In fact, there is every reason to believe if public opinion wasn't beginning to go against this kind of thing, that many more people would have been killed just like Servetus. But thank God, public opinion was smarter than Calvin, the great theologian. They knew God's heart better than Calvin, the theologian, did. But Calvin indicts himself with his own writings. He doesn't need any help. He indicts himself. He brings guilt upon himself with his own writings. But you know, the ironic thing is, even though he thinks he was right, he was on the defensive regarding his action with Servetus from the moment it happened. From the moment it happened, he was on the defensive to try and defend his actions, try to justify his actions to people who were opposing what he did, who thought what he did was wrong. Calvin was never, ever repentant of his murderous actions towards Servetus. Never. So the day he was die, he defended himself, he justified himself. And even today, like I said, his own followers, well, they wouldn't call themselves his followers, but they believe in his teachings, they will defend him as well. They'll justify his actions. I don't care what time you live in, what day and age you live in, I don't care what the influences are around you, it's never, ever okay to kill somebody for heresy, for believing differently than you if you call yourself a Christian. That sounds more like Sharia law and Islam than it does like Christianity. And as I said, where does an unrepentant murderer go, according to the Bible? They go to hell. I, have, I don't care what anyone says. I have no doubt in my mind personally that Calvin is in hell now. Calvin is named after him. People follow his teachings. They believe he was a great theologian. But his actions speak louder than his words. Like I said before, I don't care how good your theology is. Even if you have the best theology in the world, if you're living a wicked life, an unrepentant murderer, you die in your sins, you're going to hell. That's the Bible. That's, that's Galatians 5. That's 1 John 3.15. That's Revelation 21.8. That's very clear in the Bible. Well, John Calvin, like I said, he had that book, Institutes of Christian Religion. And here's the acronym here, TULIP, that defines the doctrines that he taught. Now, Calvin didn't come up with this, this acronym, TULIP. He wasn't the founder of this acronym. What happened later on, I'm not going to get too much into this, but there's another council in Synod where people who disagree with Calvinists were put on trial, and they were put in jail. And some were killed for believing against Calvinism. Uh, kind of a funny story in light of that is one of the guys, 
they were called Arminians. One of the guys was put in jail, and his wife snuck him out in a bookcase. So he was able to escape the, uh, the punishment of the Calvinists. And that was called the Synod of Dort. But we won't get into that very much. We don't have to go that far. But the point is, even though uh, Augustine was the founder or beginner of the doctrines we call Calvinism, because Augustine was the founder. He was the beginner of these things because he influenced Calvin. So Augustine was the founder, really, of these teachings we call Calvinism, or most of them anyway. John Calvin was the one who systematized it, had all these writings systematized in his book, Institutes of Christian Religion. But even though he was the one that systematized them, like I said, he wasn't the one that came up with this acronym called TULIP. These five points would summarize in a neat fashion the teachings of Calvin in a shortened and easy-to-remember way. Yeah, TULIP, anyone can remember that. Were actually formulated after Calvin had already died. They were formulated by his, his uh, followers, by people who followed his teachings. And really, these, these, this TULIP was in response to what the opposite believed. These are teachings responding to what they believe. And that's why it's, uh, we have these five points here, because the Arminians themselves had five points. And so the Calvinists came up with five points themselves to uh, counteract that. So why, why, why bother talking about Calvinism? Why bother talking about Tulip or these men? Because doctrine matters. Sound doctrine matters. Theology matters. Knowing about God and His character, and what He's like, how He interacts with His creation, how He views His creation. These are important. The Bible discusses these things. If the Bible teaches about it, I should understand it, I should know it, I should proclaim it. What did Jesus say? You should know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I am the truth. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. So the truth is important. It's valuable. And we must know the truth and preach the truth. Because false doctrines run rampant. And Jesus said false teachers will come in the last days, deceiving people, tickling their ears, telling them what they want to hear. Not what they need to hear, not what they should hear, not, the, not what the Bible says, but what they want to hear. And I'll, I'll tell you this. This will be the end of this section, and we'll, we'll take a little break. Tulip, in my mind, is really a weed in the garden of God's beautiful roses. And I want to rip it up at the roots and spray it down, and I want it ever to come back. Just like any false teacher. But this one, particularly, I don't know how it's, if it's you know, around a lot in the Philippines, but in America, it's, it's growing like crazy. It really is. So it's, it's really important to understand what the Bible says to come against false teaching and preach sound biblical doctrine. Which, is, which uh, has already been said this morning, we go back to the Bible for sound doctrine and be discerning.